everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Today's teaching is rooted in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Good morning, Discovery. It is good to be with you today. Those that you made it, you made it here. It's frozen outside. Um, I just want to also uniquely acknowledge those that are at home today uh, that, that chose to look at the forecast and say, I'm not going out in that business. Um, we're, we're so glad that you're also joining us. I, I did want you to see, it's actually not bad for those that decided to come. It, this is a great room to be in. Can we, can we actually cut to a live feed of the folks that are in the room right now, just for the folks at home? Yeah, see, it's not that bad. You guys, totally fine. But if you're, uh, if you're joining us online, I do have some instructions for you real quick, and I'm, I'm dead serious with this. Um, looking into the cameras. You need to go get some honey, like right now. Uh, and if you don't have any, I think some like grape jelly will do just something sticky, sugary. You're going to need that as we go today. Those in the crowd, uh, you've got plates with some sanitizer wipes, the sweet smell of isolation, and, uh, and some honey. You're each going to need one of those, so please make sure that you've got those handy. But as we dive in, we've begun today already in Deuteronomy 6. How do you feel about this book? in general. I think in a room this size and, and at a church like this, we're a little bit all over the map. One thing I love about Discovery is that we're always saying no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, you're welcome here. We, we are a church of people that span folks who are just checking out the claims of Christ. Like, I don't even believe this, but I'm really interested to know what this is about to people who have been faithfully following Jesus for decades. The way that all of us in this room approach this is, is totally different. And this is what we're talking about all day today, which I'm delighted about. And I hope that by the time that we're finished, you're also sharing this deep delight for this. But the Bible is a funny thing. There's never been an era like the one that we're living in right now. A time when the Bible was so accessible, yet so little read. Six centuries have passed since John Wycliffe, and if you don't know that name, man, so worth a 10-minute Google when you get home this afternoon. John Wycliffe was this Englishman who uh, six centuries ago said, the Bible should be translated out of Latin so that anyone can read it in my native country of England. And he translated it. This day and age, major no-no was drawn and quartered and beheaded for doing this activity. It's been six centuries since that. And the YouVersion app now offers alone 2,062 versions of the Bible in 1,372 languages, all completely free of charge. What an amazing six centuries it's been. 
This, this Bible's done pretty well. It would be on the New York Times bestseller list every single year, but they choose to just strike it off the list because it just it feels repetitive, and they want to just make sure that that list is new books. It's the best book. And research shows that 78 of Americans own a physical copy of the Bible. That's amazing. It's also amazing that only 9% of them say that they read it regularly. And I think, to put a point on it, the famous pollster George Gallup Jr. once said, we revere the Bible, but we don't read it. It is the best-selling, least-read book in America. Does this book play a role in your life? Every year, every month, every week, or every day? And I, I want to be so clear, you guys. Oh, as we get in. If, like... If you're like me, and shame may be just clawing its way into your thinking right now, like, I don't read it enough, I can't, like, this is what we're doing. Man, if I could just, like, blow, like, get that out of the room right now. Shame will have no place here, particularly as we talk about the best book ever. So if there's anything in you that feels like, man, I've, I should be doing this, I feel bad about not, like, if you like, I'm just going to invite you, set that down, because it will not help as we go today. And I also would invite, where's desire? And where is delight? And where is life and joy and wellspring, not just of information, but of experience with the creator God of the universe? That can stay. That ought to be here. And just to make it super clear, I don't think you'll miss it much today, but the point of today in this series on hearing God, if you want to hear God's voice, read your Bible. It's not the only place where you can hear God's voice, but man, to set a baseline for things, if you want to hear the voice of God, it's a great place to start. And again, it's, it's weird. I think we're at a day and age where there are some people who would say, you just can't trust the Bible. You can go there for experience, like you can read things and meditate and have things there, but you can't really trust it. It's not a book to be studied. And then on the total other side of the equation, you have folks going, that's all you should do with it. It is only good for studying. If you like become all new age and you're using it for experience, it's not grounded in anything. And as we begin in today, I would say this. If the voice of God that you seek to listen to in Scripture is only objective, if it is just study, if you engage the text to become certain or to become clinical about what you believe, quite frankly, I think you're boring. And if the Bible is only subjective, if it's a place you go just to feel things and to experience things, but not a place you go to try and understand what's going on in the text, I think you're crazy. Is it possible, though, to have an intellectual, studied faith that feels and experiences not only the study of God, but through that study, experiences in real-time relationship with God? To engage Scripture as the living Word of God and not just the once-upon-a-time-it-was-spoken Word of God. We are continuing today in this series on hearing God. And again, the point of today, if you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible. Shame has no place. Delight and desire and joy, oh man, bring that action all the time. 
but let's jump in. Now, if you're going to do it well, it's not going to be driven by the shame, but by desire and delight, by an appetite for it. So here we go. Are you ready to do something crazy? Grab your honey. For those of you that are like, I shook a lot of hands, I feel real weird, I'm a sanitizer person, you can grab your wipe now and wipe down your hand. Just keep it handy because you might need it later. But grab your honey packet and I want you to just empty that in a big blob on your plate, okay? Now, here's what we're doing. And folks at home, start doing this. And if you're sitting at a table, um, you can actually even do this in the palm of your hand if you're at home. That's what I would honestly, that's what I would do if I were you. If you're at home, just put it in your hand. You're at home. Who cares? Nobody's watching. Um, If you're Jewish, when Jewish rabbis begin teaching their students how to engage Scripture, really it's the fundamentals of learning. They're teaching them how to read and how to write. And so one of the things that they'll do with their young students is one day those students will walk in and everybody has a wax tablet on their desk. And what they'll do is they'll take a thing of honey and every, every student gets this big thing of honey on your plate. Okay, do you have it? Every, don't, don't give me that like, I'm gonna, my, my, my husband or my wife, I'm gonna use theirs or the person I came with. Like, you need your own for this. Make sure you have your own. If you need to like jump over the row in front of you, get it. Trust, like it's gonna be so worth it. And so, again, if you're thinking back, like ancient Israel, we don't have chalkboards really at this point in time. That's not how they were teaching. So if you wanted to teach something quickly, to be able to have a way that you could go type, delete, type, delete. This is a brilliant idea. So you'd have this honey on your wax tablet, and what kids would do is they would take their fingers and they would start tracing the letter A. And they'd do that until they could get that letter down. And they'd be learning about the A, where that shows up, what that looks like. And then once we got done with B, you wipe it, it's clean, you kind of smooth your honey back out, fresh tablet, delete. Now we're working on B. Okay, so are we ready? So here's the letter A in Hebrew. I want you to do this right now on your plates. Start tracing. I want you to do your best. On a cold day like this, it might just freeze in place. It'll be perfect. You got it? Okay, so this is how we're beginning to read Scripture if we're Jewish. This is the building blocks of how you engage literacy as a whole. You got it? Maybe if you, if you got it, wipe it and try it again. They would do this hundreds and hundreds of times, especially those who would become scribes one day. It would be their job to write these things perfectly. It could not be with any error. Okay, now, this is fun for me because I'm watching some of you in the crowd do exactly what you would do if you were nine years old. You licking your finger. And if you're a rabbi, you're grinning at your students and you go, ah, you're learning to read. The text, so good. The average kid at this day and age was probably exposed to about 60 flavors. No refined sugar as a part of that. So you've got dates, like those are awesome. But when it comes to like, what's the best thing on the market? What is one of, like, what is the sweetest, most wonderful flavor that you could possibly have? You're tasting it right now. Mm. The words, they're so good. It tastes so lovely. To just put it on your lips and just to be able to savor it for a while if you're just some poor Jewish kiddo going to school. Oh, it's the best day of school you've ever had. Is this how we're going to learn every day? And they'd be like, no, honey's expensive, so just enjoy it while it's here. 
There's some other fun things about honey, though. It was believed at the time if you were going blind, honey could restore your vision. Let that sink in for a minute. That reading, this experience of learning to read, was tied to how clearly you could see. They thought it could help with your memory or that it would make you wise to just, just eating honey. It's tied to this idea of reading. And the great thing, too, about honey and this experience is that it's not just for you. The, the whole idea of this metaphor as they were going along was that, yeah, it tastes so good, but now that's what's in my mouth. And now as I speak to you, I speak sweetly. I speak honey over you. As I engage the text, as I learn what's here, as I savor what's going on, this is now what's in my mouth, and now I speak it over you too. Oh, and it's like honey on your lips. This is how Jewish kids would learn how to read their Bibles. Now, keep your honey handy. We're not done with it yet. You can eat it all if you've got some spare plates around you, so go for that. But you want to hear the voice of God together right now? Today we're just going to take a stab at this. What does it mean to hear God's voice in Scripture? Because if you're typical, if you're a typical person, you've had the experience where you desperately need to encounter the Lord. And you crack open your Bible, and for some reason, you always turn to the same chapter in Isaiah 14, and you have no idea what's going on, and you leave feeling more desolation than you did going in. What does it look like to hear God's voice here? Our text today is one of the most famous pieces of biblical literature ever. To this day, if you're Jewish, this is recited at every single Sabbath this is recited at every single holiday, at every single major celebration. This is called the Shema. Let me read this one more time for us, and we're going to break our teaching today into two parts. The first, and again, I think if you just read it and study it and clinically go about this, man, you're just so boring. And if also you're not rooted, if there's not study, if you don't understand what's actually going on here, but it's just all about your experience, I think you're nuts. Let's go through this together and study it and then experience it. And the whole time, just like get it everywhere. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Beautiful. <laughs> What's going on? Here's some things that are really helpful to know. And when you're on your own, the beginning of the study of Scripture. Man, we have the internet, y'all. The ability to dive in for ourselves and go, here's a piece of Scripture. What's this about? What you're going to hear today about this chunk, this is not something that like you need these special commentaries and you have to translate them out of Hebrew for yours. This is just, this is on the web. How do you begin a study like this? As you dig into Deuteronomy 6, you might begin realizing, oh, this is actually tied to, Leviticus, or to Deuteronomy 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. 
And it's actually tied to a whole story that God's been doing for a while. You see, the, this nation of Israel, they'd become enslaved in the land of Egypt. And if you know the story of Moses or the story of Passover, God heard the cries of his people. He'd already made a promise to this particular group of people. And so one day he calls this servant, this little like boy pharaoh guy, and he says, you're going to go liberate these people. And Moses, there's this crazy set of circumstances that we're just going to blow through for the day. But the entire nation of Israel leaves Egypt, and they find themselves out in the wilderness. And amongst a handful of absolutely incredible moments, they find themselves at a base of a mountain called Mount Sinai. And Moses, their leader, goes up on this mountain and has this incredible encounter with God who gives him two stone tablets that have on them written something that we know today as the Ten Commandments. And he brings those tablets back down the mountain, and as he gets down, the entire nation of Israel has made for themselves a, a golden calf, this statue. And, and in the midst of this God who has rescued them, they're now worshiping this image of this bull that they've made. And it's this wacky orgy, like the whole scene is just like, what just happened? This is awful. But if you're Jewish, there's some things that you begin to understand that at the beginning of Deuteronomy, it's picking up the idea that God has proposed. If you're, if you're Jewish, it's this idea of you've been presented with a ketubah. And I've talked about this once before about two years ago. So just to refresh our memories, or if this is new to you, this is so lovely. Like, the way that the metaphors that follow all through this idea of how you propose if you're Jewish, oh, it's just, it's just delightful. If you want to get married, if you're Jewish, you usually have a girl across town, or you would be that girl across town, and you'd be talking with your dad. Your family, would, everybody would be in on this thing. But you'd begin working with your dad if you were the groom on, on your ketubah. What are the terms of this marriage? But not the terms like necessarily a prenup agreement or something like that. It would be the terms like, Dad, how, how do I want to write down the ways that I'm going to provide for her? That I'm going to clothe her and take care of her? Can we, can we make clear how I'm going to adore her? And that God willing, if we have a family, how we will cherish that family together? Can we write down how I will protect her? And they get all these things down, usually in ancient Israel, writing them down on a piece of stone. And one day, the father and the son go across town or go to the next village over, and they meet with this girl and her dad. And usually, at one point, both dads go off together, which I'm sure then the young couple is just kind of like, how you doing? And the dads, the dads figure out, like, is this, can we ratify this? Is this how we want this relationship to work out? And if they can come to a place where they agree, I think sometimes we, we bag so hard on patriarchal culture, which something, I, I think sometimes that's fine and right to do. But oftentimes in this culture, almost always, these dads would leave that conversation and come back now to the bride and say, here's what we've got. This, this young kid, kid over here, this is the life that he wants to have with you. What do you think? And she'll read it consider it. Sometimes that conversation goes on. She might pull in mom, but at some point either she will get a glass of wine and pour the glass of wine out. Means no. She'll get a glass of wine and she'll drink it, which means yes, and the party's on. 
And from here, some wild things happen. The groom and his dad, they go back to their hometown, and the son begins building onto his father's tent a place that this will be our house. This will be where we live. And he's not done building that thing until his dad says that he's done. It could be a couple weeks. It could be a couple years. But then one day, dad comes along and says, everything checks out. This promise, this ketubah that you've written, this is a place where that can actually happen now. Let's go. And their whole family, they send a runner ahead, but the whole family starts going to wherever the bride lives. They crest the hill. The bride has had people watching this entire time just to see when the days finally come. They sprint through town. They let her know. She takes this crazy ritual-like bath, just this cleansing thing, and they get married. And the whole time for her, as she's, been, as she's been waiting, she has also been reading this ketubah and considering for herself, what do I need to know as the wife, as the matriarch in this kind of a house? What are the things that I need to be working on so that I'm ready when the day comes? The dad would almost always give a dowry when he gave away a daughter. And again, this is where we can, as, as a non-patriarchal culture like this, sometimes it's really difficult to understand. Most of the time that was done with this heart of, babe, I just want to help you start your new life. Here's everything you need. Total financial backing to get things going. And before the wedding, her whole family, one of the phrases that they would call her would be, you're the treasured possession. Or other times, I think one of my favorites is, you are the one who has been bought with a great price. Those would be your nicknames. This is how you would propose and get married in this culture. Now, this is where we start to get into our study of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy begins with God saying, hey, let me just remind us all of this story. You were once slaves, and I freed you. I brought you to this mountain of Sinai, and I presented you with my ketubah. I proposed, I want to do life with you. And then, this golden calf situation. If you go back through the beginning of Deuteronomy, he's addressing all this. Remember that? It was awful. But I want you. I have hung in for you. And so we stuck it out together. We've been journeying now through the wilderness for so long And as now we begin to descend into Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, as I have remained thankful, I'm asking now for more than just fear or allegiance or like a, a clinical yes to this situation. Let me one more time just put my Ten Commandments in front of you, my ketubah, Deuteronomy 5. And then as we get into Deuteronomy 6, it's very clear in the story They are standing on a hill overlooking a place called the promised land or Israel, a place that the groom this whole time has been preparing to be the home that they will have together. And as this nation of Israel has been wandering, finally they're standing on the doorstep of their new home. And God says, let me remind you of the story. Let's read this ketubah one more time. And then we get to Deuteronomy 6, which is this declaration of what all of this means. It's this very clear crescendo in it all. And in that, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord alone. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hands. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I love that as he's saying, here, here, here we go. It's time for life together. It starts with the word hear. Listen to me. Hear my voice. Know my voice. Do you know what it sounds like? And in this series on hearing God, I don't think that we should be surprised that here again in the Old Testament, we're hearing God saying, I want you to hear me, not just read me. I want you to hear it. The most important prayer, this prayer in all of Judaism, begins with the word hear. It's as if they say right out of the gate, before you can love God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, you've got to learn to listen to him. And as you think about these words as he goes through, recite them to your children, talk about them when you're at home, when you're away, when you lie down, when you rise, put them on your hands, put them on your head, on your doorposts, on the gates of your town. He's saying, these are my wedding vows. This is my declared love. This is how a relationship is going to work. This is what life together should look like. Make it wallpaper. Put it everywhere. Let it be the jewelry that you wear, the things that you see all the time, that when you leave, that when you come home, you're constantly being reminded that I love you. And in this, in, in the book of Deuteronomy and in the story of Israel, is such a clear time where he's going, I don't just want fear and I don't just want allegiance. I am God and I want your love. As we go home together for the first time like this, will you love me? Mm, mm. Okay, there's one other thing I want to make sure that we hit here. This idea of heart and soul and might. Jesus picks up on this, and oh, I've had to fight all week. I don't want to get to Jesus quite yet, because we're going to get to him next week, and whoo, it's going to get nuts. I'm so excited to get to Jesus, but we're not there yet. Jesus will pick up on this, though. Teacher, what's the greatest command? And Jesus goes, boom, it's the most important prayer in all of Judaism. It's the Shema. Jesus loves this passage, for sure had it memorized. But when we read it, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might or your strength, it can sound a bit random. I mean, if I could, yeah, that's how I would visualize this. Like, just love him, just love him with stuff. But again, if we're going to engage our study and understand what's going on, I think this is another place where I would just say, again, Google can, can take you there relatively easily. What's going on in this text? Let's jump in. The Hebrew word heart or leb. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is a metaphor if you're Jewish. Not just as your physical heart or the thing that beats. And not even simply as your emotions or your will. But it also is actually referring to your mind. It's, it's everything internal. It's your entire inner life. It's a word that serves for everything happening on the inside. It includes heart and it includes mind. It's everything on your insides, though, how you think, how you feel, all of the inner workings, your inner self. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with whatever's going on inside. Love him with that. Ketubah, will you love me? 
Love the Lord your God with all your soul. This is weird, because even in the West today, like, what does that mean, soul? Like, what, and how is that different from your heart? And if we dig in, what's going on here? All right, you got your honey ready? You ready for another one? This is that Hebrew word that's used here. It's the word nefesh. Love the Lord your God with all your nefesh, with all your soul. Don't forget to taste it as you're writing it. What does it mean to have a nefesh? This is understood in light of how God made us. If you look up a word study, the definition is soul or self or life, creature, person, appetite, living being, and this is where it gets fun, that which breathes, the breathing substance of a being. It takes us back to Genesis, that the way that God created human beings was he breathes into them. He breathes spirit into them. He breathes image, his image into them. Covenant promise. (sighs) He breathes into them. What does it mean to have a soul? It's the idea that God is saying, I created you and put not only my breath, but my spirit into you. Love me with that. The breath I've put in you, the life that I've animated you with, Maybe it's most simply to say the energy that's in you, that life, that soul, your ability to create, not just physically, but with your words. Love me with that. And going back to these, that picture of the circles, love me with all your heart, everything going on on the inside. Love me with your soul. What do you do with your energy, with what comes out of you? And then finally, love me with all your might or your strength which we hear and we go, okay, yeah, yeah, and then like the other things that you do. But again, if you're reading this, you're going, didn't we just kind of cover strength in the whole soul concept, this energy that you have, the life that you have? And that's because in the Hebrew word for might, it's actually best captured in a word like resources. For sure, physical strength is going to be included in that, but also your economic strength and your social strength, your privilege And it may extend to the physical things that every Israelite owned. Tools, livestock, a house, and things like that. And so we begin to see as we're studying it with our minds, what is God getting at here? I've got this ketubah, and what I'm asking from you is that everything, I want your love. As we go home together, as we start this life together, I want your love but I want all of it. I want the, like, everything that you think about in your inner self, I want that. And everything you do with the energy and with this life that you've been given in your body, do that for me. And with everything that you have, everything that you've been given, from your ability to the physical things and the relational things you have in your world, love me with that. Love me with everything. This is the invitation of this groom to his bride. And man, if you can just like sink into the feels of this for a little bit, the romance that's now beginning to bloom out of our study is so wonderful. That's what's happening here. Okay, so God begins with all of these things. It's this covenant commitment that's rooted in the heart. But he's he's saying this extends to every level of who you are as a being. To say yes to this. It's huge. You've been given a glass of wine. Are we dumping it out? Are we going to drink it? And he's so clear here. What does he want? 
Verse 6, keep these words that I'm commanding you in your heart today. These 10 commands. Don't just memorize them and keep them in your head. Let them sink into your heart because the real purpose of them is that this will show you how to love me, how to respond in this rippling effect kind of a way that he's asking for. Okay, a little bit of a brief study on the Shema, but we've engaged our intellect. We know what's going on in the text. I hope that there's been at least a couple nudges here where you go, that's beautiful. I would just posit, I think that's a nudge from the Holy Spirit. Things that just strike you, they go, wow, just pay attention to that. I, th- I think you're hearing God. But today's point, if you want to hear God, read your Bible. If we just stop here and it's just a bunch of information, is that enough? In the world post the Enlightenment, when we really began to say, nope, it's all about the scientific method. It's about what you can prove. It's about how you can structure the rhetoric of an argument So many of us have been raised to engage our text, the Bible, as something that it's just to be understood, that to hear God's voice can only be done through right study, and that you should be able to defend what it is that you believe. And while that's exciting, I think it feels distant. It feels like something amazing that happened a long time ago, somebody else. And while you may be hearing God's voice in the study, it's more like an echo, his words to somebody else, not necessarily to you. So what about personal experience? Is there room for that in your approach to Scripture? That the Word of God is alive today to you. And some of you do this often. Some of you, this will be a brand new concept, so forgive me for starting at the most basic building blocks, but one of the things that, one of the tools and gifts that I've been given is the idea of something called Lectio Divina. And it's a a totally different approach to Scripture than what we've just been doing. Uh, This is not some, like, newfangled thing, so for those of you that are, like, what's some, like, young pastor, like, kicking out some new idea, it's been around, like, it was formalized in the 6th century by St. Benedict. It had been around for long before he came on scene, but it, it was developed as a way to pray through Scripture, to utilize Scripture as the window through which I see the world and see myself. So our approach here, when we engage a tool like Lectio Divina, is different than study. We're not necessarily going, what's the historical context? What's the meaning of the Hebrew word? Now, now, it's not a problem to be solved or a point to be studied, but it's a gift to be received. It's a meeting place that we can just assume as we approach the text, God's already waiting for us here in these words. So we can enter in with an expectation We can also enter in with an openness to imagination and to the mystery of how God works. Now, I think we can trust this because Scripture is the basis. We're already beginning in the safety of God's words. But I just want to say, for those that are like, this starts to feel a little bit hokey, like this could become really abused, I just want to say you are absolutely correct. This practice can be horribly used. And I would also remind you, so can the practice of studying the Word. Is our heart to seek out God's heart? Is our heart to seek out what we want to see?
It cuts both ways. Now, uh, Lectio Divina, and we're going to practice this together with the Shema. I'm delighted. But it has some movement. So um, we'll begin. If you've never seen or done this before, I will invite you now. Man, just cover that finger one more time in honey, and you can like, just enjoy it while we go through this. But as you begin in a time of Lectio Divina, typically this will be anywhere between 20 to 60 minutes long. And you'll have a chunk of text, a chunk of scripture that you'll decide, like, this is what I'm going to use today. When you begin, you don't just dive right into the text and start reading. The very first thing is just to realize, I'm using scripture as a way to pray today. So take a deep breath. Become aware of your desire to listen. And you will likely become keenly aware that there are so many voices speaking inside. There's a practice here. It's, a, it's a, the most important thing you can learn to quiet those voices, to listen to the one voice of God. But you begin by setting the stage for prayer. And then you continue in. Like Dio Divina is Latin. It literally means sacred reading or divine reading. But the idea is that your chunk of text, you're going to end up reading through it at least three times. And so you'll read through it a first time, and your approach for me typically as I do the first time is just become familiar with it and hear what's going on. And then you'll pause for a little bit after that. Just hold it. Your second time through, at least, you're beginning to ask the question, God, what do you have for me today? What's here? What's sticking out? Is there a word or a phrase or a feeling or an idea? It might feel totally zany, but you just are learning to listen for, God, what do you have here? And if you have that after a first reading or a second reading, you just hold it. And as you jump into a third reading, again, it's, God, what do you have for me today? And you're just holding whatever it is that jumps off the page to you. And sometimes it will go like a fire hydrant that's been unleashed. And sometimes there will be silence. And that's okay. After you've finished this reading process, all along you've been doing something called meditating or meditatio in the Latin. You've been just waiting for what's sticking out. But now that you have that, you might have this word or this idea, then the next step is pray about it. Which I think if we're engaging prayer well, it's not a one-way conversation, but it's a two-way conversation. God, why that? Why when I read the Shema does children jump off the page to me? What's going on there? And you just create space to continue to listen. Ask him why this. And finally, the contemplation or the contemplatio in Latin. What now? What changes? What movement has happened in me in the midst of this conversation? And for those of you, if, if this is new to you, but you're like, I'm willing to check that out. There's a couple apps out there that I just love that beautifully guide you through this. One is um, Lectio 365. The other one, it's my favorite, is called Pray As You Go. And they're just a daily thing. It's always fresh and They'll walk you through a different text of the day. It's amazing. We want to listen to the Lord together. We've done our study. What about experience? Back to the text. In Jewish culture, we would recite these words every Sabbath, before every worship session, every holiday. Usually you'd cover your eyes with your hand so that you would eliminate distractions so that you could focus on the words to hear. The beginning of this relationship for them is not with sight, it's on voice. So, let me read through this passage once. 
and just become familiar with it. I'm going to lead us into a time of silence. You ready? Let's begin. If you want to um, just practice this, you can just practice closing your eyes. You can put your hand over your eyes like the Jewish folks would do when they would read this. But I want you to become aware of your breath. Live in your body for a second and slow down your breathing. What's speaking? Is it the hurriedness of what you have to do later today or the anxiety of what's waiting for you this week? And can you set those voices aside? God, as we lean in to this brief moment of Lectio Divina, we confess that our desire is to be with you, the authentic you. Thank you that you remind us that you're like honey when we read your words. Amen. As we read this first time through, just become familiar. Maybe something begins to jump out. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you are away, when you lie down, and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We'll be silent for about 30 seconds and read it again. second time through, even if your eyes are closed, I would just encourage you, put your hands over your eyes. Limit your body's ability to perceive and trust your ears. Before we read, I want you to put yourself into this story as if you were there in the crowd the first time these words were written. And if that's true, you might have been there that day at Sinai when God offered this ketubah, this proposal for the first time, and you're still looking at it. You might have been there that day of the golden calf, that day that you returned response to this proposal with a horrific betrayal, pouring out your cup. He's still chosen a journey with you and to provide for you through the wilderness that you've been walking in, through your life, and he has been faithful. And here he is now, looking you dead in the eye, not just wanting to be feared, not just wanting to be a traveling companion or a guard or a guide. 
He is returning to his ketubah, reminding you he will commit to care for you and feed you and clothe you and adore you and cherish family with you and protect you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's sticking out to you in these readings? Is it a word? Is it a feeling? Is it an idea? And return that in prayer to God. What does he have for you in this? one final time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And if we were doing this stretched over 45 or 60 minutes, I would encourage you to grab a journal and just begin writing down what stuck out and why. And what has that conversation with God been like as you've chewed it on it for a bit? Maybe today was an encounter. Maybe today in the midst of this, there was something or there is something that's standing out. Or you go, man, I've just been with the Lord. Maybe today you're like, I, don't, I didn't get much. And that's okay. Last week we said, this is the most important thing you can learn. It will take time. But if you want to hear his voice, know that it is honey. It is sweet. It is to be heard not just studied. If hearing God in Scripture is going to transform us, it has to be something that's consistent. I'm concerned that many of us use it like a Red Bull when we need a quick spiritual insight or experience or hit. But an experience like this is meant to be more like a daily multivitamin, something that you need every day or at least consistently for it to actually do its work finished last week with three invitations, and I'm going to finish with the same three this week. You're like, what do I do with this? Man, I would just say, one of the real detriments of Lectio 365 or Pray As You Go is that they're more individualized than maybe Lectio Divina should be. What would it look like to trust a mentor 
or somebody that you know does this regularly to help you learn how to do it. And if you're somebody who you're like, I do do this, who are you giving it away to? Because, man, you've got a gift in your hands. The second thing, there's a great book written by a guy called Dallas Willard. It's out in the lobby. It's 20 bucks. We've got a handful left, so if you want one, I don't know that they'll be around for second service. We're not going to follow it for the rest of the sermon series, but it is so good and will aid in your own work of wanting to hear the voice of God. And finally, this ketubah. We didn't read it today. It is the Ten Commandments. And again, I feel so funny being like, this is the thing. But I, I want to invite you to memorize it. And I want you to invite you to experience the sweetness on your lips of what it is. And if you're willing to take that challenge, there's a whole bunch of cards out there. Grab one for your bathroom mirror, one for your car, and one for a book that you're reading. But I invite you to memorize that and put it in your heart. One final experience for today. Doing a lot of eating, but I'd like to invite our ushers forward. Because we love when experiencing God isn't just information, but experience. For those that are serving communion, if you want to start passing this. Jesus really understood this idea that we need experience, not just information as human beings. He wanted to make sure that for those who wanted to engage life with God, to hear him, they didn't just read about something that happened a long time ago, but they would participate in something in real time, something personal, something right in front of them. At Discovery, we practice something called open communion. We would just simply say, no matter where you're at on your spiritual journey, we'd invite you to participate in this. But today, maybe uniquely, there's a really wonderful spin to it. You're holding in your hand a ketubah. You're holding in your hand a proposal to a life together. And to receive this cup and to drink it is to say, I'm in. None of us understands what we're getting into when we do this, not fully. So if you're like, I don't think I have this all figured out yet, welcome aboard. But if you're in a posture, in a position where you go, I want this, I want this life together. I want to do this with God. This is offered to you. He's offered his ketubah. He has prepared a home for you. He's paid the price to call you his treasured possession. And you are now known as the one who has been bought with a great price. The death of Jesus is that price. And this cup reminds us of his blood spilled and his body broken. To drink this cup is like the proposal. It is your way of signifying. I like these terms. I like these conditions. I like this relationship. I like the thought of this home together, and I'm in. Take a moment to consider this. Today you can receive communion on your own time. And as we do, we'll move into a time of worship together.